Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the 28th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson, and later on in the show, Moby Lives Radio's Becky Kramer will talk to Michael Cater the man who's responsible for what may be the most popular website in the book business, Publishers Marketplace, as well as the phenomenally popular e-newsletter, Publishers Lunch. And last Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, was the day known to booksellers as Black Friday, supposedly the busiest retail day of the year. We'll talk to bookseller Robert Gray in an interview recorded live from the floor of one of the nation's leading independents, the Northshire Bookshop, to see what it was like. But first... Here's some news from the book world. As Mobilist Radio reported on our last broadcast, the highly controversial Google Print program has quietly changed its name to Google Book Search. Moby Lives got the story off Michael Cater's Publisher's Lunch, but almost no other news source seems to run the story about the apparent attempt by Google to distance itself from a program getting increasingly bad press and an apparent and massive copyright violation. Just about everybody did report, however, the move by the new program just a few days later when it donated $3 million to the Library of Congress to assist that esteemed institution in doing what the five libraries in Google's previous program had been so heavily criticized for, digitizing its holdings. Most major news institutions, including the New York Times, gave the donation flattering coverage and used the new name of the Google program without pointing out that it was the same program currently being challenged by the American Association of Publishers, the Authors Guild, and other library groups. Meanwhile, a report on NewsFactor.com cites financial analysts noting that the Library of Congress program, the World Digital Library, will serve as a model for Google's eventual for-profit efforts, says one industry analyst. Quote, later, as Google tries to do this on its own, they will have had the benefit of the best test market and a minimal cost of just $3 million. Said Mikhail Krishna, the analyst in question, quote, Google will be able to validate a lot of their technology and use that to start its own for-profit venture and use the World Digital Library to develop a good understanding of the market. Elsewhere in the news, in Arizona to be exact, the state's education chief, Tom Horn, has called for schools to ban a book many educators are comparing to the classics A Separate Piece and The Catcher in the Rye. Horn made the call after reading just one page of Stephen Jabosky's The Perks of Being a Wallflower, a page that included a depiction of oral sex. Admittedly, that would be the page to read. Horn, not to be confused with the legendary cowboy murderer of the same name, said, quote, There's nothing in Catcher in the Rye that's remotely comparable to this. End quote. Horn called for the ban in a letter sent to principals and district superintendents across the state, a letter in which he also recommended schools, quote, check to see if there are any other books like that on their shelves, end quote. 
But a Tucson Citizen Report says some state officials were immediately concerned by the call for censorship. Harriet Scarborough, senior academic officer in the Tucson School District, said her district is, quote, not in the habit of censorship, end quote. Asked Scarborough, quote, what is he going to do? Check every book in the library and determine if a book has pages like those? We're going to be burning books again, end quote. Harold Pinter will not be able to attend ceremonies in Stockholm next week to accept his Nobel Prize for Literature, it has been announced. However, the 75-year-old Pinter, who has been undergoing treatment for cancer, will deliver the traditional acceptance speech at the Swedish Academy a few days before the awards ceremony. His publisher, Stephen Page, will accept the award on Pinter's behalf at the ceremonies a few nights later on December 10th. That same day, we'll also see the world premiere in Stockholm of a previously unknown play by Alfred Nobel, the man who endowed the prestigious awards named after him, with the proceeds of his invention of dynamite. The play, which is called Nemesis, uh, according to an Agence France press report, was written shortly before Nobel's death in 1896 and suppressed after his death by his family, who burned most of the copies of it. But apparently a few copies survived, and it will be presented in Stockholm for the first time on the day of this year's awards ceremony by a Stockholm theater group which describes the play in a release as being about, quote, violence, sex, torture, deceit, forbidden lusts, revenge, and religious fanaticism, end quote. No mention of guilt in that list. In honor of J.R.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, and on behalf of people who can't be heard, that's a quote, a tenants group in Toronto is holding a Lord of the Slums contest. According to a Reuters Wire story, the contest is timed to coincide with the world premiere of a Lord of the Rings musical opening in Toronto in February. The campaign by the Parkdale Tenants Association will choose a Lord of the Slums from those it deems most responsible for deplorable rental conditions plaguing hundreds of thousands of Torontonians, according to a group spokesperson, who also said, quote, when the city and province brag about spending $3 million on bringing tourists in, we thought we'd use it as an opportunity to show this dirty little secret. In Spain, as part of an effort both to encourage reading and to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the publication of Don Quixote de la Mancha, the government is sponsoring a contest where winners will be paid 642 euros, that's $750, to read the novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Quote, we like the idea of paying someone to read. After all, El Quixote is exactly the sort of book that people just don't have the time to read anymore, explained one of the organizers. But Giles Tremlett reports in a story for The Guardian that reading the 950-page opus has been no simple task for some of the winners who are required to do their reading before a webcam that is then broadcast on the Internet. Tremlett reports Madrid cabbie Javier Caratero, for example, could be seen sitting behind a wooden desk, frowning, wiping his brow, scratching his chin, and occasionally glancing at his watch. And that's the news for today, Monday, the 28th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson.
Today is November 28th, and on this day in literary history in 1582, the 18-year-old William Shakespeare and the 26-year-old Anne Hathaway were married in Stratford-on-Avon. Six months later, Anne gave birth to their daughter, Susanna, and two years later to the twins Judith and Hamnet. Hamnet died at age 11 of the bubonic plague, prompting some to postulate that his death partly inspired the tragical history of Hamlet. It is unknown what exactly Shakespeare did in the first 10 years following his marriage. Scholars refer to that period as the, quote, lost years. But it becomes apparent that in 1592, Shakespeare had left home to pursue a career in London, first as an actor and then as a playwright. We know this because another playwright, Robert Greene, wrote calling him a, quote, upstart crow, who was, by his own conceit, the only Shakespeare in the country. Anne remained in Stratford, raising their children at his father's home, until Shakespeare's fortunes had improved to the point that he bought the second largest home in Stratford-on-Avon. In fact, Shakespeare became rich enough to buy property in London and in Stratford, and to become a major shareholder in his popular theater troupe, The Lord Chamberlain's Men. The group built and operated the famous Globe Theatre in London, and Shakespeare received a cut of all receipts. Shakespeare frequently returned to Stratford-on-Avon to visit with his wife and children, and to look after his business affairs, and avoid the plagues that swept through London. In 1610, he retired to Stratford, taking up full residence with his wife at the New Place, as their large home was called. When he died in 1616, his wife, by English common law, inherited one-third of his estate. But in his last will and testament, the only specific mention made of Anne was that Shakespeare left her his, quote, second best bed. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chickens. You got to know you are This is being recorded on the 25th of November, which is the day after Thanksgiving here in America, the day known to retailers as Black Friday. It's 2 o'clock Eastern Time in the afternoon, and I've got one of Mobiliz Radio's favorite bookseller correspondents on the line, Robert Gray of the Northshire Books Shop in Manchester, Vermont. Robert, where are you right now? I am uh, in the center of the frenzy here uh, at our five of our cash registers. Uh, watching a wave after wave of people go by. I feel a little like uh, the Weather Channel reporting from the... <laughs> I hope I won't be blown over, but... Uh, well, what is the weather there today? Uh, well, we got snow, so um, the morning was was a little quiet for us because uh, I think a lot of people... It was, it was the perfect opening skiing day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been cold for a couple of days, and see, yeah, I am doing the Weather Channel. <laughs> um, and the areas were making their own snow, so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people skied this morning, but um, they've come down off the mountain this afternoon. So you are getting uh, a pretty steady flow yeah, of customers. Uh, we, we were a little concerned this morning, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's picked up considerably this afternoon. I, I'm not sure you can hear um, the buzz from through the line, but moment for a moment I'll just hold the phone out and see what you pick up there. Okay. All right. It sounds pretty crowded. How's that? It Anything? sounds pretty crowded. Though. Oh, good. Yeah. 
That's how we just had the staff yell all together. No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> well, uh, tell me something. Why do they call this Black Friday? Well, what what I have always been told is, um, in the retail business, it's the day in the year when um, you go from the red to the black in terms of business for the mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. That it's the make or break moment, um, which is certainly true for most bookstores I know. Uh, is, is it actually the busiest day of the year for you? Um, for us, generally, Christmas Eve is, even though we close um, early that mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually Christmas Eve is the busiest, and this is the second. What's the big seller today? I, w- I wouldn't say that there's a big seller in terms of titles. Uh, we've been selling a ton of children's books, which would make sense, obviously, mm-hmm. because, uh, uh, you know, there just are a lot of people here, parents, grandparents, etc. Is Is there anything that's surprising you? Um, it, it shouldn't surprise me, but the, the most surprising thing happening here today, I think, is the, is the technology that people are using to communicate with each other between walkie-talkies and cell phones. Um, almost, I would say, every other person I walk by is speaking into a, a small electronic device and saying, I'm in the North Shire, <laughs> to someone somewhere else in the, in the town. So. <laughs> Uh, so is the business mostly out-of-towners? Is it local? Or um, it is, is mostly out-of-towners today. The local, locals pretty much say, every time I, I just saw actually a local five minutes ago, and usually when I see a local, I say, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> um, you know, there's a ton of people who come up to this area for the Thanksgiving long weekend, mm-hmm. and they're just they're just here. You know, mm-hmm. they, they are either here to see family, or and they all compiling in in large large groups. Now, Robert, I know something about the the way you operate, and I know you have favorite books, and you're always championing independent presses and writers that you like. Who who are you championing today? Who are you trying to convince people to take a look at? You know, I, I'm going to do a really uh, a, a, a thing I pr- I would never do, but I'm actually um, I, or that I probably shouldn't do, which is to say that um, I've been pushing Justine Levy's book, Nothing Serious, which dare I say, is a Melville House book. God bless you, my um, son. I know, I know. I'm not really looking for perks there, but uh, but it's true. It's a great novel. Um, I also, nonfiction side, uh, I, I read a book recently uh, called by Joshua Davis that's from Villard called The Underdog, which mm-hmm. has been a lot of fun to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a novel from earlier in the year called Hummingbird's Daughter mm-hmm. uh, by Luis Alberto Uria. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else am I doing? Uh, mostly beyond that, um, I mean, the, the the essence of what I do today, in in a way, isn't so much you must read this as what have you read lately and what can yeah. I match you yeah. up with. And are there many people looking for fiction and it's things like that? It's not so much. I mean, yeah. what you see a lot of today, because it's not a, a, a day for quiet reflection. Right. People um, are buying gifts, I think. They're it. buying gifts, or they're buying from the bestseller list uh-huh. quite quite a lot. Uh-huh. Every now and then you'll see someone with uh, who has an actually a sane expression on their face who um, is, is sort of found a quiet <laughs> corner in, in fiction and is just sort of thumbing through a book. But for the most part, it's... Um, it's, you know, engulf and devour kind of. Uh-huh. It, it, it doesn't feel like uh, sort of that image of a bookshop where the bell rings over the door and the cat wakes up. Right. It's not, just not happening today. The cat has been trampled to death, I'm <laughs> sure, at this point. Yeah, the cat was the first, uh, the first casualty, unfortunately. Now, Robert, you sound a little hoarse today. Um, I know from when I worked in a bookstore uh, 150 years ago, uh, people ask extraordinary questions 
of the staff. I, I regularly remember being asked if we had a book, it was, uh, the cover was red, for example, is a typical question. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of questions are you getting asked today? Well, uh, I mean, the, the questions are, are very much typical in that sense. But the red question is kind of funny because there's an essay from the mid-30s by George Orwell about working in a bookshop, and one of the things he mentions is that uh, he mentions, and then there was the lady who comes in and says, I read a book in 1896, and it had a red cover. Do you still carry it? Yeah. yeah. So it's an old, uh, it's an old tradition. The uh, I, I actually, when I when I am teaching hand selling to to new folks here, I usually tell them if a customer gives you a three-word title, assume two of the words are slightly wrong, <laughs> and don't ever work from at the start from what they say. Is, is there one book in particular that the title is regularly mangled on? Um, I haven't heard a, a new one in recent times. I mean, I made a list at one point of some of my favorites, and um, my all-time favorite was probably someone who asked for Farewell, My Porcupine, um, <laughs> instead of Farewell, My Concubine. But there were certain books that, that over the years, uh, Bridges of Madison County generated, you know, everything from Bridges of Madison Avenue to... Um, I can't remember some of the others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, snow falling on cedars. I, I remember hearing snow on cedar, mm -hmm. snow on shingles, and snow <laughs> on cedar rapids. And, uh, so it's it, it never stops that that whole thing. Well, this explains your hoarseness. It's, it's <laughs> never stopping today, I'm sure. No, and the conversation has been going on since uh, first thing this morning. Mm -hmm. so. are, are you doing longer hours today? Um, not today. I'm working a 12-hour shift tomorrow, but I'm doing a normal like eight or nine hours mm -hmm. today. So. We've got a lot of folks here. I mean, we've got really right now eight registers going mm -hmm. and people on the floor. So we've got them. We're still outnumbered, but mm -hmm. at least we're meeting them head on. Mm -hmm. Well, Robert, I will let you go back to meeting them head on. <laughs> Thank you for, for taking time uh, to, to, to get into the bunker and answer a phone call. You're there. welcome, Dan. I'm sure Thanks we're, we're going to have you back on the show very soon. Good luck there today. Thank you, sir. Michael Cater on the line, the proprietor of Publishers Marketplace, which is celebrating its four-year anniversary this month. Michael, you seem to have done a lot of things in publishing, from being at Workman to running your own packaging business and mar Publishers Marketplace, but is there a job in publishing you wish that you had held? Uh, I really don't like having a job, so <laughs> I think I'm pretty happy that I, I, I was glad to have my one job at Workman Publishing, and, and then it's been fun working on my own and working with other people, but uh, I think some people are cut out for formal jobs and, and others are suited towards uh, 
plunging forward on their own, and that seems to have worked well for me. Yeah, it certainly has. Um, Publishers Lunch, I think everyone who works in publishing has a subscription to Publishers Lunch, which is the free daily synopsis of publishing news and book deals, which has been around for a little bit over five years. Um, you know, you as I mentioned before, you started as a packager, and then and then you started Publishers Lunch. But why exactly did you start Publishers Lunch? Uh, I really started it for myself. It it was in that first internet bubble era, when if you were a book per, book packager, as I was at the time, you sort of wondered if the next day you were going to wake up and be a content producer, um, and if you were, what did that mean? Um, and there was ebook fever and all kinds of other things in the air and I was I was interested in new business models just for traditional publishing but also interested in learning what was happening on the internet and how did content work there people I'd never met were you know paying me sums that were too large to license content to my books and I didn't know why and what they were doing with it uh, and it was also that moment when you could just start to finally find real information on the internet mm-hmm. instead of what the dross that had been there in the early, early days. So I, I was going online myself, you know, more or less composing lunch in my head uh, and finding a lot of information about my own business that I hadn't really been exposed to in a regular way previously uh, and found myself attracted by it and wanted to experiment with setting up a website and everything else and figured it was better to do it with something that I was interested in personally. Um, rather than just making up a phantom project. So those were sort of the the beginning seeds of it all. Mm -hmm. And when did the moment come when you realized that, you know, not only was Publishers Lunch hitting its target and and being successful, but that there was actually a need for even more information in the industry and and forming sort of Publishers Marketplace out of that? Uh, Well, to be clear, there was never a target for Publishers Lunch. (laughs) This This was a complete business by accident. Uh, it it was really just an idea for a long time, and more or less, a business had to be invented to support what had become an extremely bad hobby. Um, the first epiphany was probably after about six months of doing lunch, when I had to sort of figure out why was I doing this, and was I going to keep going, and if so, what was going to keep it interesting? Because I never I, I never set out to be in the in the e newsletter business. Uh, and I think if it had always, if it had stayed just an e-newsletter, it would have lost some of its attraction for me fairly quickly. What I realized was it wasn't just a newsletter, that, that it was an electronic gathering point for an increasingly disparate group of people connected through the same industry, that, that we had gotten you know, the attention of a whole lot of people for even just a few short minutes every day, and that the opportunity, having come to see what you could do electronically a little bit, was to take those few minutes of attention and expand upon them, and expand upon what you could do electronically to help all those people, after they came together in this phantom electronic place, to splinter off and go find more information, do business with each other, pair off in ways that made sense for them. So that that was the kind of opening towards all the other initiatives that took really a year or so to bubble up into Publishers Marketplace. Uh, the first extension was the job board because um, mm-hmm. we, we had a sense of how important uh, finding jobs and finding employees was to people. 
and and the success of that kind of ratified the idea that okay lunch was the town newspaper but let's build the town square um, so we can stick the newspaper up in the middle but people can set up stalls and people can go off onto side streets and there can be a library and they can find what they want and then go go do other things now that we've filled the square hmm. that's a very useful metaphor um, I'm I handle rights as well as editorial functions here for Melville House and I personally am addicted to the publishers marketplace um, book tracker and the mega tracker and the bestsellers chart I mean the functionality on the publishers marketplace is really broad and deep um, is there a particular function of the site that's the most popular uh, there, there are a lot of things that are consistently popular, and you've you've mentioned most of them. Um, the, the people who like the book tracker and and its companion pieces swear by it, hit it regularly. I mean that that consistently gets about a thousand visits a day. Uh, the deals and the ability to search deals are consistently popular among large numbers of people. Um, the contact search actually gets hit a lot more than I ever thought it would. Uh, and as a result, you know, part of what we do is we watch the statistics, and when we see people gravitating towards new things, then we'll add more functionality, uh, or we'll look at the stuff that people aren't using and try to figure out why and add that functionality. Mm-hmm. Well, for people who may only be familiar with Publisher's Lunch and maybe not with Publisher's Marketplace, I just wanted to, to let everyone know that it is a subscription-based model that has all of these cool things like we've been talking about, the book tracker, the bestsellers list. It also has hosting for w- web pages and blogs about publishing. Um, it seems like your blog uh, traffic must be growing as well. Those seem to be getting more and more popular. Is that true? Yeah, the blogs have proved extremely popular. I mean, all of the page hosting features are, are surprisingly well adopted, but the bloggers are definitely generating more page views in part because they're updating their pages more frequently uh, and generating more content that kind of demands or encourages repeat visits. I, I just looked at stats the other day. I think, you know, we don't have that many bloggers. I think we have about 40 members who blog, but those 40 members are generating thirty to 40,000 page views a month, plus get a lot of RSS feed traffic, whereas overall we probably host a thousand pages for people throughout the business, um, and in total, we'll generate close to 150,000 page views a month through all the pages. So the bloggers are definitely getting a disproportionate slice, um, but I think they're they're adding really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And along with the subscription fee that people pay, I think you're also having advertising now on the site. Is that correct? Uh, you know, we actually don't take site advertising. Um, as I like to say, one reason I think our enterprises have worked is that we've done everything wrong every stage of the way. Um, so we've never loaded the site down with banners or cluttered it up with ads. We don't run Google AdSense ads or that kind of thing. Um, we, we've always wanted the site to work well for people. And our feeling has been, we're charging people a fee to use it. We're not going to grab every penny of revenue. Um, the one type of ad we take is we did start something called Feature Me, mm-hmm. which is sort of our proprietary answer to Google AdWords, because uh, we found a lot of members wanted to try to do something to boost their own page traffic, um, and were asking us, what can I do? And some of them were just playing around with updating content every day. 
and a lot of other people wanted some way of posting short classifieds but didn't want to pay a lot of money for it. So we did create this one thing, and again, they're, they're like little Google AdWords ads uh, called Feature Me. So we, we are running those. Um, we run display advertising in Publisher's Lunch that doesn't appear at the site. Right. Uh, but even there, we'll run one slot a day. We, we don't want to, we've, I think, found a way of making advertising work well by having reasonable expectations of readers' attention. One ad a day. We don't want to layer three or four ads at you. We're not going to ask you to send your attention in all kinds of places. Uh, and most of our advertisers have found they get a very good response, so they come back for more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we don't have a sales force. We don't go out and sell it. I've known as an insider all along, you can't really sell stuff to people in book publishing. They'll come to it on their own. <laughs> they'll see other people doing something. They'll hear about something from someone else. They'll give it a try uh, when they're ready. Um, and so we've just tried to create an environment that works so when people are ready to give it a try, that they're getting good results. And roughly how many subscribers do you have now? Uh, well, we email about 32,000 people every day between the, the free and the paid editions, mm-hmm. you know, which makes us, astonishingly enough, the largest circulation book publishing industry communication in the world <laughs> by a fairly large measure. Wow, that's great, considering Publishers Weekly and the Book Standard are out there as well. And, you know, we'll generate another 35,000 page views a day just at publishersmarketplace.com in addition to the actual email that we send out. When you say we, Michael, uh, are you running this with employees? Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly royal we. Um, I have a full-time webmaster out in San Francisco uh, who is really responsible for a lot of the great functionality at Publishers Marketplace uh, and a couple of freelancers who tend to particular databases at the site. So, you know, just that book review database, which covers book reviews from major newspapers every day and every week, is, is a lot of maintenance work. Mm-hmm. Um, the deal database is a lot of maintenance work. So it's, 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 a, it's a very small crew. And you, you mentioned that you plan new functionality around what is getting the most traffic. Do you have any particular new updates planned for the next few months? Well, we're always planning new stuff. Some of it is planned around where the traffic is. Some of it is just planned around ideas that we have or, or other things that we'd like to accomplish. Um, we've just made a bunch of small improvements. There is one brand new database we're working on that, that will cover both in database and news form, sort of a whole slice of the business that we're not even getting to right now. Um, but it would be premature to say too much about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're looking at other ways of dealing more with uh, the larger international circle of publishing. Hmm. Um, but the best part is, you know, we have two different kinds of ideas. We have the long-term ideas um, that sometimes take a few months to get it, come together or sometimes take a year or more to come together. And then we have the stuff that I just think of one day and I ask my webmaster about, and two days later it's live. Uh, so some of, some of the good stuff we do I never see coming until I'm staring at a page and something occurs to me. Well, well it's obviously been very successful. Um, I wanted to ask you if competitors have approached you about buying Publishers Marketplace. With all the functionality that's not available anywhere else, I would think that would be something they'd be very interested in. Hey, there's always a little bit of talk off and on, but but nothing nothing substantial, um, and it's not necessarily something that I seek. 
uh, you know, one one never says never about anything, but we're we're doing fine as we are. So, well, along with all of the amazing hard quant data that you provide for people in publishing through Publishers Marketplace, the one um, invaluable resource is that you also provide that's been there from day one has been your reporting. Um, it's really a key component, I think, to what makes Publishers Marketplace so valuable. Uh, for example, you're almost always the first and almost always, actually always, the most useful uh, explanation about what's been going on in, with Google, with publishers, and also with librarians. So I wanted to ask you just a simple question about Google, since uh, it's so hard to kind of par parse that down. Are there any simple questions know, about Google? I know, that's why I'm trying to make it a little simple. <laughs> but realistically, in your view, is there, is there any way that Google and publishers can coexist? Uh, well, of course they can. They will have to, because uh, Google is worth more than the whole publishing industry um, by by an exponential factor. I, I, if you're asking, is there a easy solution to the current situation under litigation? Um, no, I don't see it. Uh, I, I I know there are some at the AAP who still believe that there will be a negotiated solution, although that particular issue seems intractable at the moment um, and seems like it can only get resolved by courts over a long period of time. I don't know if that was the question you were asking. It is, basically. It's just a, it, this is something that we're in the, for, for the long haul, but it's going to have to reach a resolution, but it, it may not be as simple as we'd all like it to be. The problem is Google has made it clear, and that it wasn't necessarily so at the beginning, that they believe what they're doing with books in libraries is the same thing that they're doing with everything else that Google does in searching and guiding people to information. So they've given no, they've left no room to give without it having serious implications for everything that Google does. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they've drawn that comparison themselves. Uh, and they are, you know, either in litigation or facing litigation from other copyright holders, whether it's video, television companies, or news companies. Um, so clearly the prospect of taking some of their definitions to courts isn't uh, particularly daunting to them right now. Mm -hmm. Well, with that in mind, uh, do you have an industry trend that you think more publishers should be capitalizing on? Uh, I'm a trend hater. <laughs> I think publishing's a big business, and People, people like to extract small clusters of things that are happening and make them into trends, mm -hmm. um, which I think, uh, it, generally speaking, uh, leads, us, leads us away from useful information rather than towards it. So uh, I, d I don't have any big, easy trends for you. I mean, there, there are trends underlying the business itself, the wonkier stuff like the consolidation of distribution and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But if, if you're speaking just about individual books, you know, the, the marketplace is very effective at guiding itself towards, towards where consumers want to go. Mm -hmm. What about blogging? Do you think that publishers are out of the loop as far as how to best use that technology to reach their readers? Uh, I think publishers, as a rule, seem not to have taken full or best advantage of the Internet in many different ways. 
in order to reach readers directly. And I think that's that's been a stalking horse of mine since five years ago when I wrote an article called Forget the Friggin' E-Book, It's All About the Web. Uh, and I think it's still the case. Um, it could be in blogging, it could be in podcasting, it could be in all kinds of other ways. I, I was just at a publishing conference in Spain, and it's it's really my response to Google as well. I think it, as long as we're letting someone else, whether it's Barnes & Noble Borders or Google Amazon or insert your your set of larger companies here, be the intermediaries, be the ones who were dependent upon for some portion of the market or for some connection to, to our ultimate consumers, the readers, that there's going to be problems. Uh, and I think I, I always thought that I was helping to show how relatively easy it is to use content to gain attention on the Internet. And that once you gain that attention, there are all kinds of business applications that you can layer on top of it. And I still think that's the that's one of the great silver linings of the Internet for book publishers. Book publishers are masters of content. Um, but most of that knowledge and mastery is kind of locked up in the publishing house, except as it comes through the author's individual books. And to me, you know, whether you use whether you call it blogging or just frequently updated websites, uh, I, I think there's a large opportunity in publishers building sites that attract individual consumers based on their knowledge and passion for their content, and that that can can take things a lot further in terms of establishing some of those direct-to-reader relationships. The publishers are talking about a lot, but not necessarily figuring out how to establish in an effective way. Michael Cater, thank you for joining us on Mobilist Radio. My pleasure to be with you. And that's our show for the 28th of November, 2005. Thanks to Robert Gray for taking his life in his hands to talk to us. And thanks to Michael Cater for taking his phone in his hands to talk to us. We've got some really great shows coming up this week. We're going to be talking to David Eulen, the new editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review. We'll have reports from our UK correspondent, Mark Thwaite, and our Canada correspondent, George Murray. We'll be talking to another reporter who's got literary evidence that George Bush is the Antichrist. We're going to have another episode of Literature in Translation, and we'll be talking to the hippest book designer in New York City, who doesn't work for Melville House. And guess what? It isn't Chip Kidd. Thanks, meanwhile, to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and to the crew here at Melville House, Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and publisher Valerie Marians. I'm Dennis Johnson. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.